0: G'day, humans. Welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations, the show that blows past the guardrails of what we're supposed to talk about and how polite we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to tiptoe around subjects and not say the the wrong thing because we always want to be perceived as being on the correct side of politics and abiding by the norms of our tribe. No, 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 no. Me no do that, not here. Oh, goodness. Was that some kind of foreign accent. I'm going to be cancelled before the show even begins. Fantastic guest today, though. See how I changed the subject there? That was quite adept of me, wasn't it? I just sidestepped any potential controversy. Uh, Tyson Yunker-Porter. What a guy. Incredible person to meet. And this is extremely refreshing. You know, I sometimes say uncomfortable conversations is not supposed to be a show where I have literally uncomfortable conversations and make the guest feel unwelcome. That's not my object. Frequently, I have very pleasant conversations on the show. But I do try to talk about subjects that might make people feel uncomfortable if they step outside their comfort zone in the ways that they talk about them. Uh, But the show is not uncomfortable between me and the guest. Well, this episode may be an exception to that. Uh, It gets a little bit actually uncomfortable because I think sometimes when we're talking about race, if we're talking about race, honestly, it has to be uncomfortable. But it's never not amicable because Tyson is a fantastic bloke and a serious thinker, someone who's actually interested in engaging with the deepest issues, not just the superficial and the trivial ones uh, about race, especially in Australia. He's a researcher. He's an arts critic. He's a poet. He's a traditional wood carver. That was the most interesting thing that I didn't ask him about. He makes carvings of what he wants to say. He channels his thoughts through symbols and diagrams instead of Words and this from an academic. He yarns with people. He looks for ways to connect images and stories with place and relationship, and he tries to create a coherent world wor- worldview. It's he does something called sand talk, which is the Aboriginal custom of drawing images on the ground to convey knowledge, and that's the name of his book, Sand Talk: How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. We talk a little bit about that. We talk a little bit about his new book on the way that black pilling is affecting Indigenous communities. You've heard of red pilling, people sort of spiraling down the rabbit hole into alt-right communities of, uh, yeah, I suppose far-right quasi-fascism. This has its parallel in Indigenous Australian and New Zealand communities as well, where there's a significant flirtation with conspiracy thinking and even with sort of Donald Trump, make Australia great again, ism. And if you're not Australian, one thing you will need to know in order to understand uh, today's episode is acknowledgements of country and welcomes of country. Uh, You may have experienced some of this in North America where a white person will acknowledge or recognise the traditional owners of the land. You see it occasionally in like the Pacific Northwest. It's a bit more prevalent in Canada. In Australia, it's ubiquitous. In the past 20 years, it's become mandatory essentially everywhere. Anytime there is an award ceremony or a meeting, a convention, uh, even something as simple as a meeting in an office or a Zoom or a Teams meeting, it's customary for whoever it is, uh, even if there are no Indigenous participants in that meeting to, to pay their respects to the traditional owners of the land by saying something like, I acknowledge, insert traditional custodian's name, on the lands that we are meeting on today, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of this land. Um, you'll, say, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that in Australia at least daily. Um, if you listen to the radio, then the radio station that I work for begins its broadcast every day at 6.15 in the morning with a recorded message of one of those. That's the national broadcaster. It's very much... Uh, in the cultural ethos. It's a way of doing things. You get on a flight in Australia, they say that before they even start talking about where the emergency exits are. Um, I do it, the acknowledgement of country, because one must, and uh, I do it not only because one must, but because I hope that it actually achieves something. Whether it does, I don't know. Well, I do know. It achieves something. It telegraphs something to someone. But whether it's a game that non-Indigenous people are playing with each other in order to avoid reckoning with the actual theft of the land that they would rather not reckon with, in order to avoid dealing with the real disparities of income and well-being that they would rather not deal with. Um, Maybe it's a precursor. Maybe it's a necessary uh, step on the path towards true justice, true racial justice or maybe it's a distraction. And my conflictedness over that is something that it's very difficult to talk about in public because you risk coming off as seeming dismissive towards the overall concerns of Indigenous Australians. Uh, But Tyson is a fascinating person to talk to because he understands that conflictedness and he shares some of that conflict himself, even whilst being extraordinarily and vastly more radical in his thinking than I should ever dare to be. Uh, He is a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledges and is the founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University. He also hosts a podcast called The Other Others, in which he yarns with guests about how Indigenous knowledge can solve the world's problems. I hope you find this as exciting and enlightening as I did. Please enjoy Tyson Yanker Porter.
1: So I'm an Aboriginal scholar. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just a. I guess I'm just a scholar who happens to be Aboriginal, but I, <laughs> that 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 does kind of, I don't know, limit you in in what you can study because, you know, it's like, it's like you know, if you're going to be, if you're Aboriginal, and you're going to be a vet. It's like, you know, ah, oh, for native animals, you're going <laughs> to be a native animal vet. Um, <laughs> you know if you can do sociology it's going to be, oh to help your community it's like you know so <laughs> you kind of get roped in um, yeah uh, it, so i guess you, you kind of stuck with this aboriginal scholar thing um, yeah, would you so, rather um, be would you rather be studying things that weren't indigenous um well i'm i'm kind of branching out uh, like quite a bit like i'm i don't know i'm playing a lot with like economics and you know I'm really interested in all the um complexity you know in the world at the moment um mm. not like it's never not been complex, but you know what i mean um yes i'm I'm really interested in all that and a little bit of cybernetics and, and bits and pieces here and there um yeah so uh governance governance is interesting um yeah looking at all into all those sorts of things. It's um, interesting. Having lots of fun with that, but I'm really into the um uh conspiracy theory side of things right now. I've spent like the last three years like taking a real deep dive into the this kind of um a big sort of ecosystem online uh, of kind of radicalization, you know, um and this sort of red pilling of everybody on everything. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm, you know, um, been looking quite deeply into that. And, yeah, I'm really interested to talk about that too if you're into it. Yeah, definitely, um, want to get, definitely want to get to that. I mean, I'm
0: interested in what you say about if you're an Indigenous scholar, then people assume that you're a scholar of Indigenous things, like, oh, you're an Indigenous yeah. vet, you must be a vet for Native animals or, or something. Yeah, you, from where you tend is to. That, from where is the expectation coming? From whom? Um,
1: I don't know. I, I think you just kind of get directed into it. So, so my family like, is white uh, or black who are making that assumption. Uh, it's, it's kind of everything you, you end up um, in the indigenous unit, you know, in the university. And of course, you know, with that protocols, you have like, uh, you end up having connections in there. Um, there's, I mean, it's, it's at every stage. Uh, so, so, you know, okay. So if you're doing a research project, you have to apply for ethics. Right. And, if there's any indigenous, like if there's a whiff of anything indigenous about it, it it immediately automatically goes to high risk, uh, a high risk ethics application.
0: So, what does that mean? What's a high risk ethics? High,
1: application? High risk. So you can you can put in a fast track, just a quick one. Going, there's no no human ethics issues for this uh, uh, for this research thing, and you can get that passed in a couple of weeks. Uh, but if it's high risk, it can take like eight months.
0: Right. It might might be affecting disenfranchised communities. Yeah,
1: that's it. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's about, you know, protecting indigenous knowledge and and Aboriginal communities, Um, you know, but at the same time um, it's like, so you're an indigenous researcher, so it's indigenous research and it's automatically high risk. So we always have to go through the full, you know, um, academic enema of a (laughs) high risk (laughs) ethics application whenever you do a
0: Right. So it's almost like you're being treated with kid gloves. While other people are just allowed to get on with their work,
1: yeah, yeah, or rubber gloves, yeah, um, it's a, it's yeah. you know the academic equivalent of a full rectal exam. Yeah. It's um, it's 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 very tricky. It's uh, interesting. It takes I mean, we a have- long time. Although the, the the biggest one, um, I don't know. It t- it took the best part of a year uh, for the last thing I did uh, to get it through ethics. It took forever, and I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't studying Aboriginal people. I was doing a kind of, I don't know, a cheeky reverse anthropology thing where I was studying settlers. Right, and, and so it went to high. Uh, it went immediately to high risk because, because I'm indigenous, so therefore I'll be using indigenous methodologies. You know, um, uh, but I, I wasn't studying Aboriginal people. I was studying, uh, I was studying settlers in um, six different colonies around the world. And that went really high. It <laughs> mm. went really high risk, and it took a long time. It turned out the concern was they were worried that I was going to be um, uh, portraying an ethnic group in a negative light.
0: <laughs> what white settlers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really got to make sure. You yeah, oh, well, I got I got called before the board and everything.
1: I've never seen that happen before. It's it's very rare, but you know, we had to go and um, and defend it, like to the ethics board and everything. It was. Um,
0: it was full on we got it done in the end though it's interesting i mean there's a parallel thing that happens in the media where there's this expectation that anytime you're talking about anything to do with first nations issues you have to be talking with someone who's indigenous and anytime you you're not talking about that it's like indigenous people get sidelined uh, from conversations i mean i yeah. i try to i try to be agnostic about who i'm talking to so i'd much rather talk to an indigenous australian about something that happens to be incidental because it happens to be their field of expertise And I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that it's impossible or that it's, you know, wildly inappropriate for white people to be talking about policy issues that may have implications for Indigenous people or vice versa. Because I I frequently find that people will just they'll cherry pick the indigenous person who represents the white person's interests and then put them up as if they're like, you know, they're the spokesperson for every single indigenous person, as if all indigenous people have the same interests and the same points of view, like, yeah. And, and not in at all. way. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that, that even in academia, you've got the same phenomenon where it's like this is indigenous and we're going to treat it very, very carefully with this kind of tiptoeing reverence instead of just treating the indigenous academic like an academic. Yeah. Well,
1: I don't, it, it sort of goes for all cultures, really. You know, like I, I've got, I've got this big Viking fetish kind of thing. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I'm really into Vikings. Like, uh, whatever you do in your yeah.
0: bedroom is your business. Uh, <laughs> That's it. You know? uh, Tell me about just, your uh, Viking you know,
1: fetishes behind behind your own closed doors and the privacy <laughs> yeah. of your own home. That's yeah, right. but no, quite. But whatever publicly, like I wrote a little bit about Vikings in the in the um. In that in that book, Sand Talk, I did a few years back, and mm. um, I, like I think I was talking about that Ouroboros, sort of s- serpent, you know, eating its tail, and of that being an entropic kind of dreaming, you know, and um, you know, th- th- this Viking fellow like contacts me out of the blue, and he's he's quite offended, you know, <laughs> he's <laughs> like, uh, yes, uh, you, you can't say that it's not, uh, you know, that uh, it's not eating its tail. This one, it's uh, not eating its tail at all. You've got that completely wrong. This guy also, um, you know, he he was contacting Taika Waititi about the latest Thor movie. Right. You know, going, you you, you can't appropriate my culture (laughs) like this. Anyway, (laughs) we ended up becoming great friends. Um, His name's Rune Rasmussen. And, yeah, we're yarning all the time now. Um, And that's how I get my Viking fix that way. Um, But, yeah. I've just finished the manuscript for my next book, and that's got like that's got one chapter of, of Viking stuff. Like I put it all in there.
0: What um, is it about Vikings that interests you?
1: Um, I, it's just it's just that wish fulfillment of you know like this kind of being this this sort of uh, I don't know because you know I was born in the seventies and you kind of grow up with that sort of male, rah, you know, it's kind of a <laughs> barbarian. You, you know, you, you, you're on this hero's journey. You're like, uh, you know, <laughs> we all watch the movies. Um, it's, it's something about just that it's very attractive, that narrative of, of rugged individualism. Mm. And there's nothing that says that more than the Viking lore. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's quite damaging and, and terrible, but it's really attractive. Like the worst like- ideas in the world are are, su- are really successful right now because they are so satisfying. Yeah, it's more satisfying than the sort of mundane stuff we need to get on with, you know, to actually make the world not die. Because <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of heavy lifting, and it's really boring, and it's not very exciting. It's just depressing. Mm. But um, you know, all this like extreme libertarian extreme right libertarian stuff is 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 incredibly attractive you Mm. know uh, i've spent a lot of time with those communities online like um you know studying them but at the same time getting a a little bit red pearl myself you know (laughs) how did that go you can see it in you can see it in um in sand talk like you know there's there's a bit of chemtrail stuff in there there's a bit of um uh, Gaddafi nostalgia, <laughs> like inhaled directly from Russian propaganda on YouTube. Mm. You know, um, it's it's very insidious, you know, that and uh, all the attendant things that come with that, like uh, these sort of guru discourses, if you're mm. in that space talking up all that stuff that, you know, um, it's very cultish, cultish kind of mechanisms that come into play.
0: Is there a parallel between your love of Vikings and what's going on online, like this vision of masculine, of this kind of rugged, out of control masculinity, which is exciting and yeah, yeah. adventure, and the heroism and everything? Is that is is there a mirror of that in the alt right? Oh, absolutely. That's what it, that's what it's that's what it's built on. But
1: there's um, you know, and there's an antiquity to that. There's a um, you know, the, it's it's very very structural and it's uh. It's a, um, you know, and I guess we can talk about the fascist turn and all that kind of thing um, and how all that works and, and, you know, what are the kind of mechanisms and memes that sort of generate all these things. Um, yeah, but it's the, the cult, it's the cult structures, it's the cult infrastructure um, and those patterns of how you, how you uh, radicalize somebody, how you brainwash somebody. And, and you see it in that book. I was doing it, like, and I didn't know I was doing it until, so until, like, you know, a couple of years later, because I had to read it out aloud, that bloody book, in, in, um, uh, twice, you know, to do recordings, you know, yeah, for, like audio, for audio Amazon audio. and for Audible. Yeah. You know, I had to do it twice like that. So I read back through and I was like, oh my God, that's, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, so I'm like, I'm like love bombing you and establishing this real intimacy. And they're just suddenly snatching it away and slapping you. And then you're like, Oh, you don't know what you're doing. And then I'm like offer you this little heuristic, like here, here, here's five things you can do to save the freaking well. And, and then, so you're like grabbing this, like a, like a, like a lifeboat or something. And then I'm, uh, and then I'm like all all nice and intimate with you again. I'm like, oh man, that's some guru pattern stuff. That's some that's some cult cult like behaviour there. I was deploying those discourses. I didn't even know it. You
0: know. So what what is it then? I mean, you because you I know you studied Maori uh, attraction to uh, to conspiracy thinking as well with a New Zealand collaborator. Um, what what is it? I mean, is this Is there a? Is there is this different in Indigenous Australian and Maori communities than it is in the in the white, because we normally think of this as being a a white young dude bro phenomenon where they get red pilled by watching too many YouTube videos uh, and start thinking about conspiracy theories and contrails and all the things that you're talking about, yeah. uh, Alex Jones and whatnot. But you're saying this is there's a there's a unique prevalence of this among Indigenous Aussies and Māori in New Zealand too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, check it out. There's a there's a faster like evolutionary cycle that that's going on there. For for like how quickly you can get red pilled, I mean because because we're uh, sub, we've been subjected you know over our recent history to to actual conspiracies, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, you know the indigenous community, we, we just you know there are actual conspiracies. There've been actual you know people taking the kids, and still happening now. You know, um, uh, lots of child abuse uh, and stuff in a lot of pro- uh, different programs and you know um, churches and things like that, and you know offices that you know, and and the fact that we have more kids being taken now than at the height of the stolen generations. Um, what do you mean by child you know, protective services? Yeah, yeah. There's there's more there's more children removed
0: from families now than at the height of the stolen
1: generations. It's um.
0: You know, there are and just for people who don't know the stolen generations that if they're outside of Australia, this yeah. was a systematic policy uh, by the Australian government in the middle of the 20th century, I, I guess. Well, from early early to mid 20th century, to remove Indigenous children from their families in the idea that they would be better raised if they were raised by loving white families in, in Western yeah. culture and not contaminated by these backward uh, ideas that their Indigenous parents might give them. But surely that's a distinct this... thing. From from all... a colorblind policy of trying to take uh, disadvantaged children away from homes that are violent towards them.
1: Yeah, I mean it's never colorblind right. though. Like um, uh, it's it's because at each stage of the bureaucratic process of, of processing children, it's sort of um, you know your chances of going because there's a fork at each step in the bureaucratic process there of, of yes or no whether you whether you're removed or whether it's escalated or whether it's rated as a high risk or low risk kind of thing. And, you know, so you end up, you know, at the first level, you're twice as likely and next level, you're twice as likely next level. You're six times more likely. You know what I mean? So at each stage of the process, say, is it's that just kind of structural. Initial? It's, it's not just, someone. Yeah, right. It's not like a, some white devil sitting there rubbing his hands together, going, <laughs> "Yeah." I mean, I,
0: I always think it's important in these conversations, in order to bring along as many listeners as possible, without them raising their eyebrows and going, "Hang on, that sounds a bit fishy." To clarify exactly what we're talking about, like, yeah. the, we live in a in a country where Indigenous Australians are wildly more disadvantaged than white Australians. They live shorter lives. They have higher rates of diseases like diabetes. They're massively over-incarcerated. And some of that's going to be from structural racism and some of that's going to be from the legacy of the past couple of hundred years. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you adjust for all of the all of those latter factors and you simply, you know, it might be twice as likely that at one fork in the road an Indigenous child is going to get taken away, but is that after adjusting for all of the environmental circumstances that that child finds themselves in? Because we know that there's going to be yeah. underlying, you know, a, a much well, larger proportion is of Indigenous kids who are it, in
1: disadvantage. There's so much complexity there, you know, because there's so, so many socioeconomic factors, you know, all going on at once. Um, And, you know, there there is such a horrendous um, history, you know, of conspiracy, which, you know, like right from the start of people conspiring in a little room on the other side of the, on the other side of the planet. You know, um, just settle, to settle this in, content in a little room to yeah. decide what how this place is going to be. You know, categorized and classified, and and then you know what uh, laws and different things are going to be deployed in order to take the country. What lies are going to be told? The nullius thing and all these different things.
0: Yeah, that was you like know. the declaration that this is an uninhabited and, country because they had yeah. all these criteria about what what constitutes a habitation, like there have to be houses and there have to be roads and there have to be yeah. farming in this certain way that we understand. So they get uh, you these there's, indigenous Australians and they go, "Nope, they're basically fauna. We can call it uninhabited. Yeah, and then
1: there's like it, it just continues like we go, ah, you know, uh, native title, you know, we're, we're talking about land rights, you know, right up in, until the end of the 80s and even into the 90s and then that moved into native title. And then it's a you know ten point plan, uh, bucket loads of extinguishment of native title, all that sort of thing. You know, it's um, it's just always been this disingenuous thing going on. Um, the Northern Territory intervention, you know, intervention into Aboriginal communities, which is you know sending the military in there to save the children um, because there were all these, which turned out to be like uh, just complete lies later. Um, you know, all this talk about paedophile rings and stuff and and so, you know, um, they really whipped up a, uh, moral panic, you know, it, it always seems to be about children and child molestation, <laughs> which, you know, you see that so much in the, in the United States at the moment, mm. um, this idea that, you know, a liberal elite is like stealing everybody's children and then abusing them and, and drinking their blood and all this weird stuff. Um, yeah, it was, there was kind of like a big media frenzy you know, in Australia for the couple of years in the build-up to the Northern Territory intervention, um, you know, uh, about all that stuff. And then they went in to protect the children. And so the first thing they did to protect the children was force people to sign over their land uh, under native title, sign it over for 99-year leases and all this sort of thing, you know. it's just it's been really disingenuous. Look, we could we could do the whole show just on that. You know, we'd just <laughs> well let's let's just boring let's, as hell. But no, basically no, the no, let's, the let's the, the, the premise here is that you know we we, we have gone through, you know, a, a lot of different portrayals um, you know, from the from this this colony, you know, over time. And you know, it's the same in New Zealand. Um you know, an actual conspiracies to remove children, to you know, to uh, assimilate people under like you know, really quite openly eugenicist kind of uh, frames. Mm. You know, back in the day, not that long ago. Um, <clears throat> so me, the white Australia policy. I, so I, the I, the whole thing is is that um, you know these are ac- these actually happen, but then there's denial about it all the time. So we kind of you know feel gaslit you know, and, you know, we, we feel this this sense that that the that the world is against us, you know, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that there are evil forces that we can't quite put our finger on, like, where are they? Where are these decisions being made? So, you know, if we go onto a YouTube video that says Hillary Clinton is eating Haitian kids, then... <laughs> you know, we don't need to see 400 videos of that before we get red-pilled. We, it's just the first one you see, you're like, yeah, that's probably true, bros. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that, you know so
1: so you can get radicalized really fast. Next minute, you know, you've got elders putting up bloody YouTube videos for anti-vax stuff and talking about like, you know, how they, they, the government's making, you know, death camps and uh, somehow Fauci's come over here. You know, yeah. um, well, I you know, making concentration camps for anybody who won't you get vaccinated.
0: Concentration camps in Howard Springs argument uh, when I was in the states. Uh, look. I, I don't want to, uh, but Tyson, let me just pause because I don't want to let things drop by that people. I want to uh, you and me to be on the same page about as much as yeah possible. yeah. So you know, and I'm not going to uh, play the the game that is sometimes played by uh, by white people of sort of you know thinking less of thinking less of you and feeling like I have to pander and tiptoe around uh, yeah, yeah. The, the things that you say uh, Thank as. You. As some people, you know, I, I always say I, I respect I respect you too much to respect uh, ideas that might be questionable. Uh, so I'll, I'll just question those and respect, yeah, yeah. You and give you the the respect that you're due, um, rather than pretending that I don't have have questions. So on the on something like the the intervention, I mean, I'll completely grant all of the betrayals that uh, that Europeans have foisted on on First Nations Australians and the calamity of of uh, of the invasion and and all of the subsequent policies like the White Australia policy and like. Um, in the stolen generation, um, a lot of us, a lot of white people will be thinking about the Northern Territory intervention and uh, and feeling a sense that when there are problems in uh, Indigenous communities in Australia, there's a tendency among white fellas to throw money at the problem, but not really want to deal with it and not really want to address it and to to wash our hands of it. Uh, and out of sight, out of mind. And I think there came a tipping point at which people, at which there was, as I understand it, actual debate in, among Indigenous Australians as well about whether or not there should be a more proactive role in making sure that families that were dysfunctional in Indigenous communities were held accountable and that children were supported. So I completely take your point that whatever mythology there was around there being some vast epidemic of pedophilia in Indigenous communities, I I actually don't remember hearing that, but I'm sure that existed in right-wing circles. But I do remember hearing an argument, even from Indigenous Australians, that something more needed to be done and that the reason why we weren't doing it was because we were all afraid of being accused of being racist and paternalistic, and that at some point we had to bite the bullet and do something and basically give the care to indigenous kids that we would give to white kids if we weren't so frightened of being called paternalistic white racists for doing so is that uh,
1: yeah yeah i guess but i mean at the same time that there, there were a whole heap of um you know there are a whole of recommendations in all the commissions and everything the um you know little children are sacred report and all these kinds of things that were, ne- were never followed at the same time so if the intervention ends up just being a military intervention and and it seems to be more about uh, acquiring land uh for mineral extraction um you know you, there's it's a bit of a question mark mm. you know uh, over all that it's so, so there, there, that was the but there, there a, are, a, there are all these public really debates. Yeah. There are all, all these really reasonable things to say, but then there's how it comes out on the ground. Um, so, I mean, <clears throat> you know, there, there's very little, uh, internal economies, you know, in our, in our remote communities, particularly, um, you know, people struggle a lot. You know, the, the price of food is, is just, is just exorbitant and it's, it is very difficult to feed your family and there's a lot of despair. Um, and look, we don't have capital because mm-hmm. I mean, right, right up until um, uh, my parents' generation, you know, the, the stolen wages was a thing. You know, and so, how did that work. So, so wages? my dad, Kenlock, you know, from up um, on Western Cape York, there, he, he 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 worked his whole life and didn't receive any of that money that was held in trust. You know, so this happened for you know many many decades in Queensland. Um, and you know all around Australia, but in Queensland it was it was particularly terrible. Uh, you know the idea was if if Aboriginal people had money that they would misuse it. You know, so um, you just give them like ten percent of their wages, just enough for basic rations, but um, and the rest of it would be held in trust for one day when when, you know, when they'd be, they'd be, you know, grown up enough to be able to handle having money. Mm. Um, but it, and what happened to the money in the trust? What happened to the money? Well, all the infrastructure that you see was (laughs) like all the roads, you know, highways, bridges, all that was used to build the infrastructure in, in, uh, in Queensland, Mm. you know? Um, and, and so that, that money was never returned. Um, your dad did get uh, he got paid four thousand uh, dollars eventually of that back, and yeah, yeah, that didn't last very long. No. Um, you know, so so we don't inherit capital. You know, my generation is inheriting no capital. Uh, you know, we do have an emergent kind of middle class now, um, but you know, it's uh, it's starting right on the back foot at a time of you know global economic contraction that you know doesn't really bode well for any of us actually owning a house or anything like that down Probably the track. Not. yeah i
0: yeah. mean this this also reminds me of the growing in a, of the questions around inequality and the yeah. our refusal in this country and other western countries to have an honest conversation about class and about equality and at the moment we on the left seem I don't include you in this necessarily, but I include my, pe- my white peers, seem so uh, quite obsessed with, uh, with minority identification, with making sure that we're saying the right things about traditionally disenfranchised groups, oh, yeah. like indigenous Australians or LGBTQI plus people or trans people or, uh, yeah. you know. All, all um, the window dressing. Yes yeah, sort of and look i don't mean to, to say that it's all window dressing, but I do mean to say that the left had historically been concerned about justice in a in a more in a broader more broadly conceived uh, way of thinking about it, about the yeah. justice of the poor people having opportunity, about justice of as you say people having not having their wages taken away from them and being essentially effectively enslaved, about the ability of all people to get up onto the economic ladder and to start building capital that they can pass down to their. Kids and whether you're a black fella or a white fella, it's if you if your parents are poor, you have basically no ability to hope for buying a home in Australia at the moment. Yeah, it, 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 you've just been completely left behind. And I wonder how you see race and class intersecting there.
1: <sighs> well, it's really tricky. You know, we've 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 spent the last few decades, you know, in, in Indigenous. Uh, uh, thinking, you know, public thought, um, and you know, uh, the academy as with most minorities, you know, um, so, I mean, if you're LGBTQI, um, plus then you are, you know, if you're a scholar, then you're, you're, you're doing uh, queer theory, you're grounding your scholarship in queer theory. If you're indigenous, you are grounding it in indigenous standpoint theory, indigenous methodologies, uh, this kind of thing but but above all in post-colonial theory now all of this is is uh, coming out of that postmodernism post structuralism um, which kind of directs you to changing discourse you know like where you change things is like there's that idea that you know nothing exists outside of the text so if you change the text then you change the reality you know if you center native voices then, (laughs) you know what I mean, Then things change. Uh, If you have, you know, uh, indigenous representation on your board, then that's making change. Um, So a lot of it's window dressing. um, Because most of this is just identitarian politics. And this this idea that you know, if you have inclusion representation, uh, if uh, people change their language, that then somehow, everything will change, like, as though all of the problems in the society are just formed from an aggregate of, you know, bad politics and bad opinions that your uncle bloody expresses after the third beer on Australia Day. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like right. somehow that's what it is. It's like, oh, the racists. What about- and then, but then that's expanded out to everybody now. And there's this idea that, like, you know, if you're a settler or if you're what people calling white, that somehow you are completely flawed and that you're hopelessly flawed and that you are racist, you know, in, in your like DNA somehow, and that, that this is irretrievable um, and that somehow, you know, you can't know, you can't understand. And I don't know that you have to sort of be punished forever or something. There's all that aspect of things. You know, everything just sort of got a bit weird. But when we spent all that time doing the post-colonial, anti-colonial side, and especially the post-structural, then we missed the structure. We kind of rejected structuralism. So then suddenly we're unable to see the actual systems and the structures of the systems that needed to be changed. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, basically Australia has just de facto bloody um, first world status just out of extraction, you know, like being you know the lucky country, and it's basically Australia just gets to do rampant extraction uh, on Aboriginal land, and our communities must be d- displaced in order for that to occur. Um, you know, you have a, a growth based economic system whereby you know growth can't occur. Uh, you have to have growth every year. If it's not growing, then it's in recession. And you know, if it's if it's going backwards, then it's a depression and everything's ruined, <laughs> mm. you know. So in a growth-based economic system, demand must exceed supply, um, you know, so there has to be, you know, less to go around. There has to be these artificial scarcities created. You know, you have all these sort of self-terminating algorithms in the system that demand inequality. Um, you have a system of real estate and zoning laws that are mapped over the land, you um, whereby the land is divided into all these blocks and units of value. Uh, there's gentrification that goes on, you know, um, you zone, these people to over here and these people to over here. And you know, the inequality is quite structural in that sense. It's topographical, um, you know, it's that there is, there is a structure to inequality you know inequality is structural and when we say structural that doesn't mean you've got a few racists in you know this institution or that institution and it's just a few bad apples and a, or a toxic culture there or whatever it's it doesn't it, it's not about the attitudes and we keep thinking if we're going to change we could change the attitude we'll change the whole system uh, like as though this system is based is so democratic that it's based on everybody's Attitudes, good Mm -hmm. or bad, you know, uh, and that's just not the reality. You know, we're all just doing the best we can to survive in, in, you know, a system that's quite extractive and demands a lot from us. Um, You know,
0: doesn't the structural? I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for those criticisms of, of contemporary capitalism and the conversations that we're not having about inequality. Uh, the structural argument is one that I find it hard. People find it hard to get their heads around because like, I don't know if you remember during the black lives matter protests in the U S in 2020, there were a lot of, like there were a lot of viral videos. For example, there was one where there was this young white, uh, girl who was screaming profanities at a black cop who was trying to Pre- prevent the uh the the mob from coming coming through the crowd from coming through and she she was accusing him of being racist and like his buddies were trying to stand up for him and say that he wasn't racist and she's like not personally racist structurally racist you're structurally racist because you're part of a structural system that's keeping people of color down now she's not a person of color he is a person yeah, yeah. Of color. he's a. you know who they're, knows they're, what they're,
1: they're not talking about structural but like, they say structural but that's they don't understand what a structure is what is it? They, <laughs> well, it's, think it it's, is it's, it's just what what I was describing before. It's it's just the um, you know an entire system, and, and it comes back, back to chief, land. It's, it doesn't change an entire system of zoning, and you know uh, where you put people and how they move around. I'll give you an example. So they kept failing with the uh, they were doing COVID uh, uh, like predictive modeling for the spread of COVID yeah. in the US, and and the, pr- the predictive tech wasn't working. You know, they, they'd model it in, in these, you know, big computers and it wouldn't work. You know, it was like uh, it kept going the other way and it kept failing um, until they factored in structural racism. <laughs> so they actually changed the algorithm and um, and put in the, the structural racism. So I'm talking about, you know, how different postcodes uh, are... Um, uh, you know, uh, structurally have different levels of access. How uh, people are crowded in, you know, to, to certain places or denied access to this side of the town. You know, so like you, the buses from the the, the black neighbourhood are, are are. I mean, you deliberately make sure that the the underpass that they go through is is too low for that bus to get through, so they can't get over to that side of town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, et cetera. Et cetera. So. You know, when they when they factored in all the structural racism, then the COVID modeling became accurate. But what you it, know, it, 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 it is, it is, it really is structural. It, like, so the way the way people are policed in certain communities, uh, where people are directed to go and not go, um, uh, the like the population density in certain areas where people are kind of packed into those, uh, uh, you know,
0: more, you know, uh, poor zip codes. Um, et cetera, talking et cetera, Mostly about, about inequality and poverty here. I mean, the, the thing about not allowing a bus, you know, building buses too tall to get under the bridge to go to the nice side, side of town is would clearly be structural racism. But the, yeah, the yeah. Oh, that, of, the, that was about, that was, that was back in the day in when, uh, that's where they're more closely packed together because they're poor yeah. uh, is a consequence of poverty. And if there are more black people who are, who are poor as a proportion of their population than white people, is that racism? I mean, it may stem from racism. <sighs> Yeah, it may, may stem from a legacy of racism, but I think we get, we get caught up and we get t- tangled up and start talking past each other when we're talking about, okay, so they adjusted the algorithm for structural racism, but if we're including in that definition of structural mm-hmm. racism, the fact that hospitals are more poorly resourced in poor areas, for example, or that schools yeah. are worse in poor areas, or that poor people have to live in larger households than rich people get to because they can't afford such large homes then we're extending the definition of structural racism to encompass basically everything that's wrong with inequality
1: it's exactly it's it's probably more useful to look at things in terms of structural inequality um, and 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 to to bear in mind that that a growth-based economic system demands inequality and it can only function with inequality because you need to have growing numbers of people every year uh, who are missing out they well, need you to, need to have, be missing you need, need to, to, to be missing out, out on goods and services. The, the, the in order for those in what? order for those in order for any goods or goods or services to be able to even be priced, you know people need to be missing out and you need more and more people missing out because the pricing mechanism is missing all out now. on what well the, the pricing pricing mechanism is based on limitability and excludability. So it's about whether you can limit a product that there's high demand for and who, whom you can exclude and how you can ex- exclude those people from access to this thing. Right. And that's how, that's how price is determined.
0: But so that, one, that is a each, structural, that's an I example of a to structural at each, at each point here, Tyson, so I can clarify it. There isn't part of the pernicious thing that modern capitalism does is that it stokes a demand that people didn't even previously know existed or that they didn't previously had have, like, the material well-being of poor people in 2022 in the West is higher than the material well-being of poor people in the West in 1992, which was higher than 1952. We're not, we're not creating greater deprivation of actual goods. We're creating greater deprivation of what people's aspirations are, and then their aspirations keep notching upwards, which means that they are constantly feeling like they're on a treadmill, this hedonic kind of rat race where they have to get ahead. You know, Even poor people now in this country might have a television set, perhaps even two, perhaps a car. That's something that couldn't be said a generation ago. But now that's not enough because capitalism and advertising and marketing and keeping up with the Joneses finds a way to make us not just want a television set, but now we have to have a virtual reality headset or we have to have a, a, a tablet or we have to have a Kindle or whatever it is. Isn't that what the, the game is where, where the growth? Most, is- most
1: people can't access those things. Most people don't no, have that's access right. to those things. That's that's a that's a real minority in the world. Most people do have to a TV. That, that stuff.
0: Yeah. Most households do have a TV.
1: <clears throat> yeah.
0: And they didn't in the 50s. Mm.
1: Well, I mean, it, the other thing is it, it it comes back to this zoning thing. You know, it costs a, a lot more money, um, you know, to live in a place where you have access where you have access, for example, where you're not living in a food desert. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, uh, uh, so a lot of our community, uh, you know, if we're in urban environments, um, the only place that we can afford to rent, like the places where we have to go, uh, these exist in food deserts where, where you have to travel for 45 minutes on a bus to get to the supermarket. You know, um, and this makes shopping really tricky. But uh, there is plenty of McDonald's and KFCs around. Mm. You know, in those places, and in the end, it's usually cheaper to <laughs> do something like that. Um, yeah, it's. But I it's have just, seen it's not, it's not, it's not, it's just not the truth that that you know, material well-being is better. I mean, I really question the metrics that are being used. Uh, to decide that you know material well-being is better now than it was before, um, you'd probably like that. Was it Stephen? That Pinker, yeah, that yeah. He's a he's a guru at the moment in that kind of <laughs> you know sense-making space. That that sort of uh, heterodox thinking. You know, Sam, yes, Harris, so he looks Sam at,
0: Harris kind of oh, just calm I mean, down and look at the facts.
1: Yeah, he looks. At he looks
0: at the metrics that he he assumes we would all agree with, like infant mortality, yeah. life expectancy, uh, the number of women who die in childbirth. Uh, you know those kinds of things, and then also yeah. adds to them things like the rate of violent crime, the rate of homicide, uh, the rate of hate crimes, and concludes that in general these things are. are, are declining and material yeah. well-being is going up people have have more money they have more stuff like we can certainly have a philosophical question about uh, argue, you know argument or discussion about whether or not having stuff makes people happy <laughs> clearly the jury's out on on that but people do have more shit in their lives than they did in previous generations yeah. in that sense there you are also
1: required to like you, you're required to have more shit in your life. In terms of
0: the cultural expectation, you know? or in terms, well, of-
1: so I mean, I, I got I got my first mobile phone in in 2016. I didn't want to have to have a mobile phone. Oh, bless you. I'd love you to. You know, get um, mobile. I didn't want to ever have a mobile phone because I was saw what was happening to everybody else around me mm. uh, with this bloody thing, and um, and I just didn't want to do it. And so I didn't, you know, for so long. And in the end, I had to because I had to have it if I wanted to work in the academy. You've got to have yeah. a mobile phone. I yeah. can't log onto my computer without having an, without using the app on my phone, the, the, the verification thing. Yeah, I can't, yeah. I can't park my car here since I moved to this city, you know. Um, Etc. Etc. So basically you can't live, you know, in a city unless you have, you know, a phone and you have to have a decent phone too, I later found out. So, and that's quite a lot of money, mm. you know? Um, and then if you want to work, you know, in the information economy at all, you know, you going you know, to want to have a laptop as well. Um, you know, if you're going to uh, want to study or anything like that, these things, you know, have uh, obsolescence built in. And you have to be continually upgrading and replacing them. Um, you know, it it may well be that you know you could measure, you know, how much people are spending on these things and go, oh, look, there's an increase in material well-being. It's like, well, no, you know, there's also an increase in peanut allergies and freaking you
0: know. <laughs> there's an increase in
1: autism. Like, like autism's going through the freaking roof. Um, everything's going through the roof, and there's constantly this this myth of progress going on. It's somehow and this this has been from the first civilization, like like ancient Samaria, you know, between the Tigris and Euphrates, where the first little civilizations poked a little turtle head out. You know, <laughs> it's been the same freaking thing, it, it, the same same playbook. You um, tell a shitty story about the past. You go, ah, yeah, the past was terrible. <clears throat> you know, it was really bad yesterday. I know it's really bad today, and it's really hard you know having to burn your life to slave and labor away in this city you know in order to build this place but you know what it's getting better it's better today than it was before you know you think you're suffering now oh my god what about when you would run around naked on the tundra like shivering away that was terrible oh it was just all people just raping and murdering each other back in the old days you know there was no rule of law everything was terrible you know so we have this myth of primitivism they're emerging, and today's better. So you control the past, present, and the future, and you control the future through contracts. Uh, and see, then in in those early civilizations, that was the reason for big monotheistic religions arising. Uh, was that's how you can enforce contracts beyond the sphere of trust locally? Mm. Um, there was
0: a mean, cosmic you, enforcer. Well,
1: people, yeah. There's this idea that there's this all all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipotent being that if you swore an oath, you know, to honor this contract, which you had to sign, um, that then somehow, you know, if you broke that contract, then you'd be punished by this deity. Um, and that, that's kind of how those big religions came out. Now, out of the big religions, you know, that has that has this seed in it. <clears throat> it has this seed that's, that's kind of... Uh, is, is, is kind of the, the original um, seed of narcissism, this, this, this horrendous, like, little self-terminating algorithm that's gone right from the start of things and coming through till today. You know, it's, it's got that, that idea in those big religions that, um, you know, we are an in-group, you know, and you're lucky to belong to this in-group. You know, we are the good people and the righteous people. Those people over there, they are not. Those people are evil. So there's this idea that, you know, people begin defining themselves, you know, in relation to some other that is wrong, bad, evil, wicked. And so you define yourself in terms of, you know, so what are we? Well, We're not them. What do we believe? The opposite of what they believe, you know, so you get mm-hmm. these op- oppositional frames coming up. Um and then you know it's not far from there you start to see you see it in every religion this this idea that um those people will be punished you know those wicked outsiders they will be punished they're wrong and they they're going to they're going to suffer for it and then That's more and more this idea that we are the righteous agents of 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 their punishment yeah and that uh you know we will be delivering god's wrath unto them you know uh, so this uh this is just rolled out over and over again. And then it's it's only a short leap then to the fascist turn. And that fascist turn is just this slight difference. You know, the fascist turn is when you start that dominant group, uh, that dominant insider group, starts to portray itself as the victim. of oh, These marginalized others. Well, those marginalized others are actually really privileged. You know, they're actually really evil and they have a plan and they're going to... Uh, going to replace us mm. you know you see that now with that great replacement theory all that kind you of thing. It, i mean you see saying uh, so they, they, they're going to replace us and we in fact you know at the center of power here we are the oppressed yeah minority even though we're the majority you know mm. it's common um, to
0: far-right groups all over that the that's that fascist
1: turn and that's and- um that's what's pretty much driving most of the disinformation on the planet right now
0: just to close the button on, I love your point about like ancient Sumeria and, you know, everyone always, always, uh, you know, shitting on the past in, as a way of, of encouraging people to put up with, uh, with the flaws of the present. But yeah. just to clarify, I don't want to be misunderstood. When I was talking about Steven Pinker and, and progress, I was very careful to say we can have a, a discussion about whether or not material progress actually makes people happier. Because yeah. you, you said that civilizations are always saying, oh, there was so much suffering in the past and things are going to be better in the future suffering in the past is not what I said poverty yeah. in the past is what I said yeah, so yeah. I'm talking about purely material well-being it may no be no the but when, when you look the case, at the pinker hang car. on just let me finish it may be the case that living in a more traditional tribal society where there's more material poverty but greater community makes people happier and there's less suffering there but the Pinker claim is is a claim that there was less material well-being and higher rates of you know things that we reg- we currently regard as being bad like infant mortality and people dying early and so on and so forth. Oh, oh and cannibalism up with cannibalism
1: and and sodomy right, yeah. and all well, those you know, kinds uh, of things. Uh, Basically, like, all uh, the all the checklist uh, of whether or not you could. Uh, You could enslave somebody. You you could legally enslave people if
0: you could show that they were morally uh, morally bankrupt and that kind of thing. We have to be careful about whether or not we're we're throwing under the bus people who are purely looking at data by lumping them in with people who are being hysterical and racist about tribal societies. But but on the point of in-group and and out-group, I mean, it's so fascinating what you say about religion and creating these oppositional frames and saying Mm -hmm. we are the good guys and then that fascist Mm -hmm. turn of being like now the people in power are actually classifying themselves and regarding themselves as the victims yeah because part of what you say applies to the the far right right and and to to this kind of sense of white grievance against you know the great replacement theory as you say or like you know we're having we're having our traditions taken away i would also just note that most of the white chauvinists, most of the Western chauvinists or the white supremacists, don't look back on the past as being a time of of suffering and poverty. Most of them are the ones who look back on the past and say, oh, "Well, the have golden age, make, yeah. make America great again, right? Yeah yeah, most of them are the ones who are saying, actually things were better in the past, and we have to go back to the past." yeah and frequently, it, you know, it's the, it's the people on the, on the more progressive side who are saying that the past was was terrible. But anyway, that's... that's yeah, oh, that, that's a
1: mythology that, 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 that has antiquity to it as well. Yeah. That, that goes right back... Uh, yeah, that goes back a couple of hundred years. I mean, the, um, the
0: religious kind of sensibility of putting ourselves on a pedestal applies both to the far right, but I also see it on the left as well, in the sense yeah. that there's a, a white, progressive, university-educated elite who is among the most privileged people in the world at the moment who look at conservative voters or at Trump voters as being irredeemably racist and part of a you know a bygone era and those people I'm not excusing their beliefs but I'm trying to understand the context and the economic context and the inequality context in which a person whose, you know, community has yeah. been ravaged by globalisation well, and by the decline of the of the social state.
1: I guess it's important to look at the facts and data, as you said. You know, I mean, everybody likes to look at a, you know, YouTube video of a libtard saying something stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and go, ah, oh, there, that's what they think. That's what they say. You know, everybody thinks that uh, whatever pops up on Twitter with like, you know, a handful of people that that's somehow represented, representative of the entire left or, you know, of this, you know, insane left or <laughs> something like that. And it's, um, I don't know that that's not, that's not strictly true. I, the the no, other no, thing no, you've no, got no. though, your other thing you've got though emergent is the, is the, um, out center, this phenomenon. And these are all your sense makers and your ones who are like, well, I'm just looking at the facts. The facts don't care about your feelings let's just look at the data and calm down and take a deep breath here um you know and they sort of they claim and i say alt center because they claim to be neither left nor right um they claim to be on the fence but they're standing on the fence facing the facing towards the the, the left and sort of you know berating the left for for being insane and then sort of at the same time going oh come on like you know, if, you know, everybody, you know, if, if it wasn't Trump that did it, you know, you wouldn't be <laughs> going nuts if, you, uh, I, I don't know. They seem to be, they seem to be excusing the right all the time and the, and the, the, the insane right and increasingly focusing mm. these sort of anti-woke kind of messages mean, towards, uh, no exactly towards the left. And there whole, is, whole, there is a moral panic emerging. You know, which is exactly the same as all the other conspiracy theories and, and uh, moral panics of the past. Uh, the satanic panic that you saw coming out in the 90s and then has actually had a big resurgence now, um, you know, which, which is tied back in with all the rest. And, and you've been seeing it in the States since McCarthyism.
0: Well, there's definitely... um,
1: There are these moral panics that emerge, and we end up seeing the same pattern playing out every single time. Um,
0: Right, but Tyson, I don't don't think that the overarching moral... So there is, I I will grant you, this kind of uh, just-the-data sort of disingenuous kind of uh, foggy-minded centrist who spends all of their time Criticizing uh, the the most extreme examples of wokeism, who becomes essentially a useful pawn for the yeah. right. And yeah. I've seen colleagues and friends of mine go down that path over the past yeah. five years. I've seen people who started out being genuine centrists, and I don't and I don't mean fence sitters. I mean you know rational people who, yeah. whose hearts were in the right place, who have been. I don't know. They've been captured by their audiences, I guess. And they've, yeah,
1: audience capture is a thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Into, into even all the way to anti-vax and, you know, hysterical, you know, the COVID was planned or whatever it might be. And that that has definitely happened. We've lost people who've become, you know, Trump supporters who were previously, I thought reasonable people. Yeah. Uh, The, the analogy to something like, I mean, I can tell you working in the bubble of elite progressive consensus that the religio the religious impulse that you talk about of in groups and out groups where y- you know the we are currently under siege by a, a an out group and we are and, and as we make the arguments about being under siege we're completely blind to our own privilege yeah that is a phenomenon that is that is happening i never see greater religious like i was traveling around egypt just before the revolution and met with a, a lot of islamists well several you know almost jihadist adjacent Islamic fundamentalists. And the kind of look in their eyes was this this sort of peaceful certainty that I was almost jealous of. It was like, I wish life yeah. wasn't so complicated for me. <laughs> yeah. they, have, they have just this moral, this absolutely unruffled moral clarity.
1: Yeah.
0: And I have, the only other place I've seen that is among highly progressive, you know, what we might call quote-unquote woke uh, colleagues of mine, who are absolutely certain that because they do the acknowledgement of country, and because they are into their bush tucker, and because they're you know they they say all the right things about all the right identity groups, that puts them on the on the side of the right and anyone of the you know of the of the mor- of morality, and yeah. then anyone who is so retrograde as to be a tra- quote unquote traditional white Australian who doesn't you know who doesn't see things their way, is part of that outgroup. And this is a religiously devoted thing, and it is a moral crusade somewhat like the satanic panic. I, I mean, I don't think that your analogy with the satanic panic maps as well as you think it might onto, yeah. onto centrists who are worried about workism because as a centrist... No, who, but that, that is a gateway I'm, drug. I'm, I'm, pointing, I'm seeing a real uh, like religious mindset among the progressive elite. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But see, that I mean, it's
1: and it's far more complex than than you think in there as well. Like your whole um, progressive, left leaning, new age wellness community. Yep, you know <laughs> that's, yeah. that's 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 Been another an backstory And And yeah. it's not long before they're doing fascist stuff too. I mean, they'll they'll be marching alongside Canadian truckers before you know it. Right. Uh, right. They're in the drum circles there as well, and you're like, oh my god, uh, mm-hmm. and and they all sort of seem to come together. Uh, and like you, like we were saying earlier, you've got Maori, Maori groups who are like Maori Māga, um, and joining them with all this white supremacist rants and you know five G, you know stuff, and they're marching alongside white supremacists just without a care in the world. I mean, yeah. you, it's it makes for strange bedfellows, and it's not it, it's far more complex than just left and right. You know, but there is a moral panic uh, around wokeism, um, and see your centrists, uh, your sense makers, heterodox thinkers, um, all these ones there who are you know, uh, and 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 then further out from them in their intellectual dark web, and you know, and you got people who are just asking questions and all this kind of thing, you know, they 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 kind of you know that they're, <laughs> they're doing the same thing. They they're being captured by their audience. Uh, and they are also bringing a lot of people in uh in a in, and and end up tending towards some some crypto fascist kinda uh stuff as you go along and and after a while that they'll go full fashy um you know it's certainly it, a thing that happens i think it just has it's to be it's a, case a, it's a thing that happens but I mean, there is Morgan, this moral
0: panic from rogan is different from harris is different from whitecell oh, it's different from dave rubin is is all yeah. different from me Uh Yeah, but but they they
1: have an evolution as well. There's Brett Weinstein from bloody, you know, eight years ago and there's Brett Weinstein now. That's cool. And so he he began as one of those just asking questions at the centre. But he was was responding to the moral panic about wokeism, you know, um, and the fear that he would be cancelled and that idea Mm -hmm. in that fascist turn of, oh, I am the victim. So me yeah, at the yeah. center of power? No, we're not powerful. We are actually being victimized by these these marginalized others.
0: No, totally. But just because and he went there doesn't mean that that so trajectory is inevitable. I can name just as many people who started out as yeah. centrists. who well, look. I, I've
1: spent a lot of time in that community over the last three years, and, and I've got a lot of good friends in there, and and I've seen their evolution and devolution, you know, going on in that space as well. Yeah, look, it's a bit of a gateway drug, the sense making thing but mm. but back to the wokism thing and the moral panic about that you know it's in its current iteration cancel culture you know began as a thing of the right and it wasn't called being canceled it was called of being di- dixie chicked or being mm. donahued mm. you remember with the um you know anybody who spoke out America against fought. the war on iraq well I mean, be canceled. They even before that, and much and much that, that so that was that was whatever. that was a warning to everyone you'll be dixie chicked you'll be donahued you know, and um, yeah, I, I think eventually that the left has, has started taking up those tools of the right and and uh, part, parts of the left have anyway. But and- then at the same time, I, I hear you completely and, and quite agree with you on this, uh, on the window dressing side. And, and because I'm kind of rejecting post structuralism and I'm more into structuralism now, and, uh, you know, in looking at systems and you know, finding those leverage points for actually changing the material system. You know, I, I feel that, you yeah. know, I, I feel that quite strongly that that all the window dressing stuff, all the uh, acknowledgements of country, all this stuff, it's, um, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly annoyed about these things. You know, yeah. so I did for about a year, I would every time a, a settler would start out before me, Uh, Like to introduce me, and they do an acknowledgement of country. When then they'd introduce me, I would repeat back word for word their acknowledgement of country, but in the voice of an orc, like from from Lord of the Rings, (laughs) and instead of Aboriginal, I'd say, you know, I would like to acknowledge that this is Halfling land. And then I throw in something like, um, um, but I'm never ever going to give it back raw you know that, that kind of thing it, it went badly but I kept doing it you know for, for a I long time it. yeah and, and I, I start saying to people it's like well you know you have real estate are you gonna you know you, mm. you don't don't go acknowledging that that's our land without yeah. saying I'm not moving. This That's is right. why there was a, there was a, like in this place where I'm living now, there was a real estate auction a while ago and they had like a welcome to country. They had an acknowledgement of country and a big smoking ceremony at the auction. Wow. You know? And I was like,
0: mm, you're literally selling the land. Yeah. Yeah. And this is somebody who, you know, they didn't earn
1: that house. Like they inherited it mm. as, as Intergenerational capital over mm. a, a number of generations, you know, from people who really didn't have to work much to get that.
0: Yeah, no, the boomers. You know, back in those days, days they, they, in the
1: sixties, you could have an uh, just just show up, yeah. do a bit of unskilled <laughs> labor, and in five years, have enough to buy a house, and then you know. Yeah, no, they so bought those F-coms jobs, yet. and that money wasn't available to everybody because you know you have to have that limitability and excludability. Mm. And anyway, so this person's selling that place and and making like a you know a million dollars, and um and there's they've got an elder there doing a smoking ceremony, wow. and they're acknowledging that it's Aboriginal land, but uh, but I'm going to take this million dollars, and then yeah, this other course. person is going to take possession of it. And what's the smoke for? Is that to cleanse the 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 spirits of the murdered Hmm. dead off the land there is that to wash away the blood what's the acknowledgement for why are you acknowledging and having a show to to this aboriginal land that you're not going to share you're not going to open up the walls so there's a free flow of you know humans and non-humans on country being able to move across it in, in order to make sure it all doesn't die It's like, no, you're going to keep maintaining those boundaries and those barriers to stop those flows of spirit and elements and uh, animals and plants and seeds and and all the flows of waters and, and winds and everything else that actually make, and fire, you know, that makes country work. You know, you're going to have these parcels that you have walls and fences around, and you're going to kill that land, and you're not going to stop doing that. So, like, acknowledge that. That's what I'd like to hear in an acknowledgement. Yep. I want to hear someone say it. I want to hear someone say, look, <laughs> mm. I'm doing all right out of this and I'm not prepared to give it up. And I'm really sorry and I feel really bad, but but I'm keeping all this. Mm. Like I want to hear someone say that. Like I'd go yep. up and hug that person yeah.
0: and yeah. say,
1: hello, brother. You know, um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for speaking straight.
0: Yeah. Um, you know I'll tell just, you that I'll tell you that Tyson I just bought a house and and I'm not giving it up and I'm not uh, I mean that that's just the reality of life uh, yeah. you know and and every time I hear that kind of fatuous virtue signaling to other rich white people it makes me sigh a little bit and think about the poverty and the the disenfranchisement of indigenous australians and the the barriers that are put in front of them that people who do those acknowledgements seem genuinely uninterested in tackling. Maybe you know, maybe a little bit, but not in any way that's actually going to hurt them. And I, I am not going to give up my house. And yet I know. I mean, this is the moral tragedy of it. I know that my yeah. grandparents, who gave my parents the deposit to buy their house, which then increased in value and I was able to grow up in, when my grandparents bought their house for almost nothing. Indigenous Australians weren't even citizens. I mean, this was before the referendum. Yeah. They were basically yeah. fauna in Australia and had no opportunity to do what my grand- grandparents were able to to do in New Zealand. And I'm aware yeah. of that moral crime and I'm benefiting from that moral crime. Yeah. And, and, I, and um, also the, the
1: infrastructure was built off the wages of the Aboriginal people who were working in your grandparents' time and not... Correct and not getting their, their, their pay, you well, know, um, it's, it's just, I mean,
0: I I mean wanna, where, I tell me where, where tell me
1: where this moral, this, this comfortable moral position is, you know, tell me where you can stand. That is not just horrific. You know, yes. there isn't, there isn't a place to stand for anybody, for any yeah. of us. There's no place to stand. That is, that is comfortable. That is right. Where you can feel ethically like, you know, to be here in this place and time is to be ethically compromised, morally compromised, mm. and there isn't any, anywhere to go uh, with that. Um, and no, I guess I mean, you know the, the, your nuanced response to that will kind of, I guess, determine you know uh, what kind of a person you you are when you die. Um,
0: I mean, yeah. I, I my goal is for us all to be fair income about it, and there's just a lot of not being fair income at the moment. There's a lot of posturing and there's a lot of show and there's not a lot of recognition that i want to do everything that i can do to actually make real change and if the necessary step to get to that change is for us all to play these language games and to have this kind of rhetorical dance that we currently have where we're all supposed to say the correct thing and uh, pretend that uh, everything was absolutely perfect before white people invaded this continent, and yeah. uh, think that white Western civilization is irredeemable, and that all white people are complicit and are structural racists, Ooh. and that we, uh, you know, that we need to do acknowledgements of country as if they were saying hail Marys in order to absolve ourselves against the crimes of our fathers. If that's a necessary portal through which we can find justice, I'll do it. I just doubt it. I doubt that that's the best way because there's something that it, there's something that feels phony about it yeah
1: well and it's it's not addressing the the actual structures at all nobody really wants to look at that people like to think that if they can just change hearts and minds everything's fine so all we've been focusing on for like 20 years is is um, you know uh, what do they call them um, with like cultural cultural awareness workshops and things yeah, like that it's, sort of diverse it's, for the it's, it's quite a it's also. quite an industry. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, man, I used to do them. I used to deliver those and I know I've I've been to so many and seen so many and uh, help people develop them and all that kind of thing. I I've never seen, I've never seen it change anything or make a difference with people. Like, and, and if you do make a difference, it's like, there has to be a reset within a, a couple of weeks because those people need to be able to feed and shelter themselves. And, you know, if you're in a system that depends upon inequality, and on you doing your part for that, and you know, being a good neoliberal subject, then, you know, you're not going to be able to run around doing that for a while uh, I, I, all the time. But, and, but, you know, I, I guess the good thing about the work left is that, I don't know, they've made it acceptable, you know, to be able to focus on that. Mm. The problem is the call out thing. So look at Deakin, we have the, this indigenous knowledge systems lab, and so that operates on Indigenous law and Indigenous protocols, you know, for inquiry into complex problems in the world. And one of our protocols is is that we never call people out. We call people in. And that's, that's the difference. Mm. So calling in is very different. So you're calling people into the right way to do things. You're calling people into the story. You're calling them into the fire. And, you know, you're redirecting there. You're never calling them out for the bad behavior because the people can't people can't handle that you know dale carnegie that how to win friends and influence people way back mm-hmm. in the day he, he said that and he was right you know nobody likes to be criticized <laughs> no one likes to be called out um you know if, if you want to alienate someone and and drive them further and further into their bad behavior and then you call them out uh so we don't do that we call people in and um And it's a hell of a lot more productive.
0: In Sand Talk in Chapter 10, Tyson, you talk about um, this sense that white people can have that everything that an Indigenous person says is wise, which I thought was really interesting because there is one reason why I I think there's a disjoint, there's a rhetorical disjoint in the media in talking about Indigenous issues is because if an Indigenous person... If you suspect that, and this is what I meant before about I'm going to respect you enough to actually ask you questions without holding my punches, yeah. uh, if something, if it's sound, if you, if your bullshit detector goes off with someone who is of the same race or the same ethnicity or the same, I suppose, gender as you are, then you're able to call them on it. If a person is from a traditionally disenfranchised community, it becomes harder. And if a person is an Indigenous Australian, then there seems to be in my view, a special pass in the sense that we don't necessarily know enough, know enough about indigenous culture to know whether or not what's being said is wise or whether it's silly. And I love that you are, are brave enough to address that. What's the correct response? Mm. I, I just, I, I think it's
1: more complicated. Look, that's an audience capture thing as well. You know, th- there is a white gaze on our elders and on us all the time. I, you wouldn't frickin' believe the things that people project on me. Like, I think I make it pretty clear in, <laughs> in talk that I'm really marginal, even in my own community. And that, um, you know, I, I, I'm a very, very junior sibling, you know, and pretty much have the, all the knowledge of, of about a 14 year old boy, you know, it's, I make it's very it humble. very, very clear I, I keep getting these things projected on me that I have all this wisdom, oh, this ancient wisdom, you know, and it's not it's not blackfellas projecting that on me. It's, um, you know, so I think, I think people are captured by that stuff. And so you end up with, you know, people who well, that's the only way they can make a living, you know, is by sort of going along with that um, to some extent or another. And you end up with a whole heap of like, uh, you know, new age stuff getting mixed up in there. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's plenty of bloody things It's I don't know, there's, there's a lot of like Aboriginal sort of spiritual things that you can do now. That's pretty much like, well, we've painted some dots on a yoga mat, you know, yep. um, there's some, there's some rubbish out there. Um, but also, you know, good on your brass. You do what you need to do to feed your family, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's. There's a lot of stuff you see people coming in and indigenous people coming into tech and like, you know, uh, kind of, I, I and I keep saying, you can't just paint some dots on a Fitbit and call it a digital walkabout, you know, <laughs> there's, you know, there's a difference between, I don't know, if you're doing a chat bot, for example, if you were going to make an indigenous chat bot, then what would make it indigenous is right back in the decision trees. Um, you know and the semantic sort of stuff that you have to you build a chatbot on with the decisions that they make when they're yarning that would make them yarn instead of just chat you know that's where you'd have to make the changes to make it an indigenous chatbot you can't just feed it some anthropological data sets so that it's talking about indigenous content and that's the thing that's the problem we all focus on the content rather than the process you know we focus on the the Ah, you know the window dressing, the 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 stuff on the outside, the coat of paint on the wall. You know, we we focus on that instead of the structure of things. Um, Tyson, this this happens this happens a lot. But yeah, there there is that there is a bit of a thing about indigenous wisdom, and you know, I think a lot of people are rewarded for you know mirroring back to people their 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 sort of weird wellness guru or new age kind of spirituality but through a a kind of an indigenized lens uh with a couple of gum leaves on it you know Mm. uh, this this happens um but you know it's i i don't know is that any worse than the people from other cultures that do the same bloody thing um you know there's a lot of mess in the world right now and we get we get a lot of that mess too we got we got fellas wearing we got elders wearing maga hats
0: we got. Well, like, let's get back to that. I want to get back to that. that all you Work on conspiracy theories because what's so you, you can take this wherever you want, but I'm in, most interested in the anti-vax strain among mm-hmm. Indigenous Australians that cropped up during COVID. And then, and of course, I think we all understand that a community that, ha, that has been repeatedly betrayed is one that is more susceptible to feeling suspicious of authorities who tell them that it's a good thing to get things jabbed in their arms. Like, I, I think we can take that as a given. But then yeah. there's this other question of like, why would a black fella or a Maori want to be wearing a make America great hat when that is so associated with a certain vision of kind of white? I mean, I know that I'll get a lot of shit from Trump people for saying this because they, they don't think that mm-hmm. it is. but i think there is a traditionalist kind of white pro western civilization like mm. you know reverence for white culture how do they reconcile that it's it's just good story
1: <laughs> you know so like everything everything in our world is coming from story and there is spirit there is always spirit in that you know there's a kind of a, a spiritual um ontology that's that's underpinning everything and that is missing you know from your kind of mainstream narratives uh you know that e- everything you hear from the office of the chief scientist is it's kind of it, it just kind of just it's it's dry it's a dry old prospect right. that one in yeah. terms of story and the in terms of spirit is kind of it's, everything is has spirit sanitized off it mm-hmm. but not the crazy right you know the crazy right and, and where that meets the crazy left, you know, mm. these people have good story. They, they've got a good story that's compelling. And there's spirit in there. You know, there's good and evil. There's freaking demons, bros. There's demons in there. Yes. yes. You know, and we can like, yeah, it's like, oh, thank God. There's some really good white people here who are talking about. Freaking demons
0: and stuff. I mean, the funny stuff. thing is, Tyson, that the yeah. in, uh, it's so it so resonates with me what you're saying about story because I, I can't quite I haven't quite come to any conclusions about it, but I think you're definitely onto something in a in a, in the appeal of a grand narrative. And this is we're seeing it on the right and also on the left, as you say. Like there's so, no offense, but you almost sound like you're edging up to Jordan Peterson territory in the sense that. Jordan Peterson is a person who says the world is all about narrative. And if you strip young men in particular of stories, of a meaningful story about their lives, then they're going to be lost and they're going to be dysfunctional and they're going to act out in the most egregious ways. And a young male is the most dangerous thing in the world, always has been. And when he doesn't have a narrative to fit into, he becomes a a terrifying barbarian. And, you know, Peterson would say that that's what's happening in the West because we've, lo- we've unmoored ourselves from senses of tradition. You know, in Peterson's case, he'd be talking about religion as being a fundamental component of that. But I wonder what you, I know you're no fan of Peterson specifically, but I wonder what you make of that, that <clears throat> diagnosis of our current predicament as being one in which we're bereft of story.
1: Look, I think there's a lot of obfuscation in that space a lot of obfuscation in that uh, space where the the overlap of the intellectual dark web and the heterodox thinking community, all that sort of stuff, a lot of obfuscation um, arising from this kind of mythopoetic, you know, uh, thing and sort of intersections with, you know, Silicon Valley, kind of Californian ideology stuff. And, um, you know this idea of uh, mythic narratives and Campbell's hero's journey and mm. archetypes and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, you know, but and and they they kind of have these this fractalization of uh, of metaphors. You know, there's constant metaphors and analogy and analogies that kind of they just tend to obfuscate what they're really saying. Which in the end, if if it's Peterson, it'll be a message like where you have it both ways, this is the thing, you know, he'll be going, well, th- there is no patriarchy. Pro- prove to me that patriarchy exists. I'm not entirely certain that, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so good, uh, so you'll say there, there's there's but... no such thing as patriarchy, but you should be grateful to it because look at all the things it's given you. You, you know what I mean? Um, and and, and at I, the I same time, at the you same time be... your, your, your Petersons yeah. tend to, they'll take something that's a, that has a core of truth to it, and then they'll wrap it up in a several layers of bullshit and keep spinning it out. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just, I tell yeah, you, it's, 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 really- a, it's a lot of trickery. Do you want yeah. to hear the first the first paragraph to for my next book? Please. You get this exclusive here. Awesome. Uh, only because it's germane to what we're saying. Okay. Because <clears throat> my next book, it's pretty much all about this stuff. Great. Oh, so you know how the last one I started out with the echidna? Yeah. Oh, I'm starting this one with the echidna too. That's if it makes it through the editing process, which it might not. Anyway, first paragraph is, did you know that male echidnas have four penises? If I were as smart as an echidna, I could use that fact to come up with an evolutionary theory about male dominance and project it onto my own species, then sell a million books. It's not really a fact, though. He only has one grotesque dick with four heads, and his mate probably doesn't want that horrible thing anywhere near either of her vaginas. (laughs) <laughs> so I don't know. That's a bit of a I don't I know, it. a it's bleak reference it. to it's lobster. Peterson's lobster sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so that's how it. I'm opening the book. That's great. Um, I don't, but, I'm it. I don't know if I'm allowed to say penis and dick <laughs> and vagina like that many times
0: <laughs> in two sentences oh, at the start of a book. We'll if, the if the publisher rejects it, please push back against them. But the, <clears> but, <throat> but so let's set aside all of his disingenuousness and just look at whether or not there's a kernel of truth as you say in in part of the diagnosis which is that if you've got white nationalists and you've got these far right people and the uh, and and kind of western chauvinists as they call themselves creating narratives about a long uh, you know an, a lost era of uh, oh. you, you know of the past that they want to resurrect uh, you know a future which could be much better if we weren't just constantly being undermined by these whatever it is, uh, immigrants or uh, First Nations people. And then on the other side of politics, you've got these people who are, for want of a better word, woke, who are extremely obsessed by a narrative about, about the history of civilization being one of colonialism and oppression, and that the arc of justice is one in which we have to, in an almost paternalistic and condescending way elevate the voices of marginalized communities and unquestioningly listen to everything that they say without giving them the respect of engaging with them rationally, I would argue. Then what I see is two camps which are weaving huge, meaningful narratives out of a culture that is lacking one. Mm -hmm. And in that small respect, isn't Jordan right? Um.
1: Like Jordan's right about bloody clean your room and be nice to people, <laughs> and that's you know that that's it. Stand uh,
0: back oh, with your shoulders no. straight.
1: Yeah. So I mean, in that piece I sent you, um, you, you know about the the black pilled yes. sort of sort of thing. Yeah. You know, there's there's an interview with a young fellow, um, a uh boy that I've I've known since he was quite young. And, you know, I've been alongside him through his gradual radicalization there online. And, um, you know, he's done, he's read uh, Peterson's entire reading list, not just the Peterson's books, you know, but all the books he recommends. So he's read all the uh, Solzhenitsyn and Nietzsche and mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and it, I don't know. I, I've just, I've watched him graduate from Jesse Ventura You know through jesse ventura's conspiracy theory stuff when he was a kid and he collect all the figurines uh watch him graduate to mma you know and uh joe rogan uh et cetera et cetera you know and and just just watch that with interest and i know some of the stuff that comes out of his mouth it you know jordan peterson stuff never ends with it doesn't just end with that 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 grain of truth and and like really i mean it's pretty basic clean your room and be nice to people you know and your life will change Um, you know, and he gives people that gift and they are just, those young men are just so overwhelmed with gratitude, you know, and, and then they just swallow hook line and sinker all the other bullshit, you know, so he might, he might have some truth stuff and some right stuff that he puts out initially. But then that's he's doing that in disingenuously because yeah, Tyson. I, I feel he's like then in, just
0: radicalizing people from there. I feel and, like in your in your zeal to uh, to, to 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 extinguish uh, Jordan Peterson, the man uh, from from the the pedestal of credibility, you're somewhat dodging. Or, the the question or or the opportunity to address the question of of story and of narrative like is this a is this a problem or is yeah. it not a problem it just
1: I, he doesn't know what story is forget about jordan oh, okay all these people so all these people well, forget about all they them. don't they, just they don't know they don't know what story is story story is something completely different joseph what? campbell um joseph campbell has sort of put this idea forward of this hero's journey and he you know went and got exotic precedents you know, from various indigenous peoples around the world and sort of recast those things. I know that he was, it was disinformation, what he, um, what he gathered from here in Aboriginal Australia um, a, as well. And so, and he's projected this entire lens, uh, you know, of this hero's journey and all these archetypes, you know, onto the stories from here. And that's, it's just not, that's not what story is. What is it? Story, story is something that emerges from a collective, you know, um, over deep time. It's, it's an intergenerational thing. And, you know, it, it develops and grows in those ways. It has place, it has place in it. And, you know, it has variables of time, place, and, and really intensive relations. Um, It has law in it, you know, that, that shows you how to be. It is a mnemonic device. It is a, a cognitive map you know, for your spatial relations in the world, which is how most of your cognition happens as a human being. Um, story is all these things. It's, it's much more than this kind of mythopoetic uh, thing that people are just kind of awkwardly sort of wrestling around with at the moment. Um, you know, story is bigger. Story is more. Um, yeah, so, so I, I would say a lot of that is, is wrong story how we would
0: say uh, a lot of the stuff they're looking at there tyson i could uh continue this conversation for two hours but alas i can't i have to go It's uh, just like it's like just the tip here touching the surface yeah. uh it's so lovely to talk to you you've got such a such a great and huge brain and i'd love to continue this uh either either socially or on the record again when you get back from your trip yeah, yeah for sure for uh yeah for yeah. sure we'll um yeah, this sounds like a beer a beer talk. Yeah, right? exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. One. And do. we could just shout over the top of each other. <laughs> exactly, that's right. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Tyson. All right, no worries. Man. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.